I had this deep knowledge that I don't know why I just knew this, but I knew that what what happened that day was part of what had been going on and building for the last six months. And it just seemed true. And it's a strange period of time as well that expands beyond any of your previous experiences. When you get beyond a week of illness and there's really no sign of improvement and then two weeks and then a month. And at the end of the month, you're thinking, well, if I'm better after three months, that's okay. Your sort of horizons extend and then, you know, you get to six months and you think, well, I've got no better. In fact, Mm. I've got worse. What's what's involved here you know what what time scales realistically am i thinking about hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you so today we're getting better acquainted with ian Hello. <laughs> See, we said hello at the same time then, because we've uh, we've already done this conversation or so, or a conversation similar to this, but I didn't press record properly and uh, didn't notice this. Till, I reckon it was about fifty minutes, the fifty minute mark, and that was a great fifty minutes that they'll never hear. Yeah, yeah, we've got it. But they'll hear something <laughs> something along those lines now. And in my experience, we'll do some things better and some things worse. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's kind of like about accepting that acceptance is something I try and do in my life. So it's nice to be forced to have to do it. Yes, more practice. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So uh, I guess I've known you for a while. We were trying to work that out earlier. Our first attendance at Spark, but it was through uh, Spark London um, storytelling at Hackney. And I know your friend from college, Louise, who I work with. I've got to know fairly well because we do a train journey and we have like an hour between Oxford and Paddington uh, at least once a week where we talk nonsense and stuff. And uh, she told me about the the Spark thing. So we've been coming to that a fair bit and uh, really enjoyed those. Yeah. Um, And Louise, as I I said in our previous conversation, she's been on Getting Better Acquainted a couple of times. Quite early on, I guess, uh, and she was the f- one of the first people who had a repeated appearance on Getting Better Acquainted, because in her first conversation, there was just a really big area that we didn't go into, and uh, we went into that in the second one. So have a listen back to those. Yeah, they were some of my my first episodes where I sort of really had a feel for how the show could go, I guess. Oh, right. A real sort of sense of, of it becoming something more than... Mm. More than just me trying to improve my ability to talk to people. <laughs> what, what what inspired you to do this specifically? What to do? Getting better acquainted. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It was that. It was I. I wanted to get into podcasting. I'd done some other podcasts before. Um, I did a podcast with two of my oldest friends for four days. That was the idea. It was four intensive days where we we recorded everything. Mm-hmm. What that taught me is if you get in a room with your school friends and you have like no sleep and uh, you record everything what you record is yourself acting like you're still a teenager for four days um, yes. so I, I aired that podcast not not very much of it is available now but you can still hear the best of the, okay. the, the best bits if you like the best episodes for what they're worth if you listen to them and think they're not that good well imagine what the rest was like but uh that taught me, you know, that I didn't like 
hearing myself as that version of me. Yes. So I wanted to have conversations with people who weren't my oldest friends and see how that changed me. Because I started noticing that I talked to different people differently and, and I thought maybe this would be a way of of, of uh, laying that person to, to rest a little bit, putting uh, an idea of myself as less kind of 15 uh, out into the world. Yes. And also I sort of wanted to learn how to talk and how to listen better like uh, I guess I I was worried that I didn't listen to people there's possibilities for me repeating the way that my mum is in the world and my mum doesn't always listen Mm -hmm. Uh, so I want to to get better at that so that was you know that was the that was the crux of how it all came together and then I just thought right I'll interview everyone I know it's it's a little bit based on podcasts that other people have done that Mm. I, I was I was listening to at the time Yes. But yeah, that was it. Mm. Trying to improve myself. Yeah, but you've obviously got... There's a specific, a specific remit, isn't it, that you've set for yourself that that obviously works and you've, you've followed it through for a long well, time yeah, now. yeah, in a way. I mean, I think that's how it started, but it's become something that controls me rather than me <laughs> controlling it. Like, it, it has its own logic. Like, sometimes guests lead on to other guests or mm. uh, sometimes areas come up that I never expected to talk about. Like Yes. The show's a lot more about religion and death than I ever expected. Okay, yeah. Not to say that there aren't lots of other things that it's about too, but, mm. but you know, you sort of go down these kind of, these roads and they turn out to, to not be cul-de-sacs, you know, you, mm. you sort of think that's what it, that, that's the shape of it. You yes. get sort of halfway and you realise, oh no, there's a whole load more of this road and this is where I'm, this is where I'm at now. Yes, which is the, the joy. Possibly. And one of, one of the things it's tied in with is, with Spark, um, because I've been telling true stories there, mm-hmm. and that's what you've been you've been doing that Spark as well. I mean, I guess you've been coming to my Hackney night for a, a, over a year. I think it's about a year. Yeah, yeah, it's about right. And mm-hmm. you've told stories at the Canal Cafe Theatre at Best of Spark. You came along initially with, as as I already know. So, uh, but you came along initially because you know Louise, and you and you came along to a night which we did within the dark, which isn't the normal way the open mics go. You came back though, yes. Um, and you did. I mean, because you, you said in the conversation that didn't record, you said that uh, you hadn't necessarily expected to talk, but you had a sort of like you had a history of talking a little bit, and you you went into that like when you were at university, you. What, what do you do? You want to, do you want to just set that up rather than me? Like, this is like rather than it be me remembering what we, we've just talked about. You, you might say my story better actually with uh, from earlier, but <laughs> but yeah, I I guess there's a certain level of comfort uh, that uh, whether rightly or wrongly I, I have that yeah I, I'm okay standing up in front of people. Um, performing is is the thing that I wouldn't think you know I. I wouldn't be as comfortable doing if it's something more practical or procedural or something. I'm I'm fine talking in front of people, but uh, uh, but yeah, I, when I first saw Spark, it was also reasonably daunting because though that first night in particular, there was uh, uh, a good roster, a good calibre of people and, and stories I still remember from then. And you know, it's up on the stage and there's lights, and that can be a little more intimidating if you're thinking, oh, what have I got to say? But I also found that. Uh, those spark evenings I, I think more of the more of, of sharing than than performing it, it is almost like that old you know getting around the campfire mm. and just swapping 
experiences and things, things that are common to all of us and things that we can all gain something from, I think, just the, you know, just from hearing them, not necessarily life lessons, but I just think that sort of richness that you, you get from them is, is really good. You come away from those evenings, I do, you know, and uh, I, I tend to come with my uh, friend Andy and we're still talking about the stories on the bus and the next day and they're really special. But, but yeah, the, the, there's a very warm atmosphere when standing on stage that that makes the experience of public speaking much easier um and that that's something i think i've really enjoyed that uh, that hopefully you know if i stand up people are just happy to hear what i've got is the same as if anyone else stood up and you think great you know just go on stage and uh, you you always get something from it i i mentioned at, at, at university i was uh, president of my hall of residence partly because no one else stood but I got voted in and the easy bits were all the meetings and stuff that I could do quite comfortably and every term there were some formal meals where there was this uh, sort of traditional uh, format where the the warden of the hall and then the president would would give a speech that was designed to be entertaining and it was terrifying I can remember days beforehand uh, all I'd be thinking about was what on earth I'm, what can I say to 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 amused 250 or 300 300 semi-drunk people um uh without falling on my face or it just going very quiet and um over the course of the year I, I got to really enjoy that experience there's something quite uh rewarding when it when it goes well and, and by the end yeah I was sort of very comfortable so I, I suppose that in my mind I had that that memory of something quite nice um, I, I got a bit closer to that in Spark uh, I think the last story I told I, I felt I was more relaxed and more me than I had been at previous occasions because yeah there's, there's still a level of tension and the, the, the best of Spark was was more terrifying still of uh, right because that's much more of a sort of theatre performance kind of it's a yeah. theatre you know it's a, more of a theatre space as well yeah and the night was wonderful but <clears throat> but retelling something that you've had going round in your head in idle moments for, for more or less a month thinking what you're going to say and is it going to work and yeah there's obviously a, a different atmosphere there you are performing more to paid a paid right. audience right, than, right. than just sort of sharing something yeah and uh, yeah you know, you're aware that there's a headliners that are very familiar with um with, with performing you know that they, they tend to bring something extra that's that's not your normal environment i, I mean i loved it but yeah the, the period beforehand just got increasingly <laughs> tense in a much different way to, to spark um, but yeah it was a lot of fun and it was almost as tense seeing my sister get up and do it as well it's right like... <laughs> yeah 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 because your sister's now uh, also coming and telling stories in fact the last yeah. uh, the last spark we had um you and your sister both telling stories about your father because it was a father's mm-hmm. uh, father's day theme and uh, that was really nice to have like two members of the family telling mm. uh different stories about about yeah, about their father yes. next to each other. Yeah, the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Uh, so, yes, for money, I do IT, primarily websites. I do a bit of office database stuff as well. And I, I currently work for a firm in Oxford. And I freelanced for quite a while prior to that. 
um, that I, I I I needed to change. I think the the plenty of freelancers out there, your, yourself as well now, that right, uh, yeah. <laughs> permanent state of insecurity. Yeah, uh, there's a freedom that comes with it, but also you know, you sometimes wait for the phone to ring or something's coming to the end and there's nothing... I think there's weirdly freedoms involved with both uh, going yeah. freelance and having a guaranteed, secure salary. They're yes. both They're both different kinds of freedoms and I think yeah. that's the thing. Yes. But yeah, I'm really enjoying the upsides to being freelance. Mm. Uh, I really miss the upsides to having a salary. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, the control stuff is nice in some ways, but I think you start to get to a point where you realise you're not that much in control. Right. You're, you're perhaps in control as much as the next phone call, you can say yes or no, but you always say yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's much of a decision. Right. You'd have, you have to be so busy that there was rarely a time when I perhaps would have been applying for things that I most wanted to do. It was more stuff that just came my way. Yeah. Um, partly I'd done that you know, word of mouth and stuff, but uh, it wasn't always stuff that I guess so I was passionate about. Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd increasingly done stuff for, for this one firm that became my main um, source of income, and it, it made sense to shift into full-time, and that's been a good move for me. And yeah, so I mean, I, I know that you studied, uh, you ended up studying IT back when you were at uni mm-hmm. uh, from our previous conversation, and you know, you sort of fell into into that. That wasn't a, a passion of yours particularly, but it's not not a passion. It's just a. I mean, you, you were very you were very eloquent, and this is one of the things that's very frustrating <laughs> about having lost it. You're very eloquent about so many things uh, that that you, I'm also going to ask you to talk about now, um, and I'm sure you'll be eloquent again. But uh, no pressure. Well, it is like, in a way, it's like what you were just talking about, like uh, recreating something that you've had in, that you've already done. It's, it's a bit like when you were, we yeah. invited you to the Canal Cafe Theatre to do your mm. story that you'd done at yes. Hackney. So, and and what what you said was, you know, you you were slightly envious of uh, of people who have a kind of one thing that they've always wanted to do that they mm. they push for, like a have a have a direction they want their life to go. Yes. I think it's an envy, but I think sometimes you you see how other people work, and I don't know if it's a jealousy. It's just you, you can't put yourself in their shoes, right? And you, you you're totally aware. It obviously, if hopefully, it does work for them, and that's great. And it's just that questioning of what what would what would have made me at that point make choices that I mean, you, you're you're forced to make choices in the education system at a ridiculously early age, anyway. Um, 13 or 14 you might be sort of setting the first um, set of, uh, uh, of train lines that you have to stay on for the rest of your life if uh, you're not careful so yeah I, I never had that idea at all e- even I remember that going to going to college from um, a grammar school boys grammar school but it was very academic and uh, they they just wanted you to go off to university without really thinking what you were going to do um, it's, uh, I was in the I guess, early 80s when I was 82 to 86 I was at college and I suppose I still had that vague idea of uh, almost like a hippie thing that you go there as an academic experience or life experience and you get a degree on the way but you sort of grow up and find out who you want to be and Right. That, that growing up and finding out who you want to be never quite happened Yeah. Uh, you do get a degree by accident 
I did notice there was a, a weird change that I, I would remember in '85. There was a that sort of Thatcherite culture um, that uh, started to permeate the students coming in, and I remember they turned up and they were just a little differently dressed. They weren't the the sort of um, slummy second-hand clothes sort of uh, student that I was used to. They were just slightly trendier, and they turned up talking about jobs when, when they first arrived in their first year. And it just seemed that there was a, a shift, whether that was just me, but before that, people just turned up at college and you know got on with whatever was going to happen over the next three years. And it seemed that the... The, the culture had changed and there was a student coming in who'd obviously thought and planned what they might right. be going to do at the end of it, more, more so than I think had happened before. And, and I'm sure, you know, the, the, the trend has continued uh, from there, you know, with, with um, student debts and stuff that people have to be fairly sure they're going to earn some money, I think, before they take on three or four years of education. That's right. I mean, I think you said that... So you said in your... Um, in, in the first conversation, you said that the reason that you chose to... <laughs> To uh, to be to do IT was essentially because the the bank sort of said, mm. well, you know, we'll take away your cards unless you yes. get a job. Yeah, there was never a life plan. <laughs> I, I think sometimes, I think it's quite common for people to work out what they want to do when it's almost too late to change. They might be in their thirties or something or forties and think, wow, this is what I. Why didn't I know this twenty or thirty years ago? And um, uh, and actually have a a more primal passion for what they're doing if, if they can earn money from it as well that's great but yeah that, that there was no life ambition almost ambition's the wrong word you want to do well I suppose or you want to you know do as much as you can but yeah what that would be w- was just completely vague I, I, I went to do geography which clearly is the ultimate indecision uh, you're not going to do much with geography specifically so um and I chopped and changed courses and ended up on a computing course, mainly because um, I'd got thrown out of uh, college through failing or just leaving. I was that disinterested on a business studies course that I did a year of, and then came out with a computing degree, which hadn't been a... I'd been exposed to computers. We were talking about primitive time in the late 70s. There weren't many computers in schools at all. So uh, I think a friend, a fairly wealthy friend, happened to have a home computer no one else could afford them in those days so I had some exposure to what might be involved but at college I, I realised I had perhaps some aptitude and um, yeah some interest in pursuing that and uh, uh, ended up with uh, coming at 86 with a competing degree. Yeah I mean then I, I guess it, it, it's, it strikes me that that's a good year to have like computing skills uh, in but like when I when I said that in our previous conversation, you sort of said you know there's still a sort of deficit to a certain extent of skilled people working mm-hmm. in in in, in IT uh, even now. So it's still quite a, a useful thing, to, a useful skill to have. I think so. Yes, yes. I, I mentioned I, I I get annoyed. I don't know if it's right for me to to. I mean, it, it is a passionate thing because clearly it's worked well for me. But um, that that kids aren't exposed to programming which might seem a little scary for people who, who might think well I can't program anyway but I, I think if the you know all that primary age you just yeah. started to be aware of what 
goes on in computers. The age when you should be learning a language is a good time to learn, like, computer language, right? Yeah. I I mean, I wish I could code. I mean, I wish I was a coder. And I wish I could speak another language. They're Mm. very similar things. Yes. Mm. They give you keys to to do stuff that, uh, that, you know, if you don't have those keys, then you have to put up with other people making the decisions for you, Mm. right, in both of those circumstances to a certain extent. Yeah, and everyone pretty much in whatever walk of life if they're going to be involved in well certainly office or any other structure or pretty much just just anything to to any workplace uh, it's going to be computers and um, you can use them at a superficial level just you know type some documents and a spreadsheet but um, there is this big skills gap that uh, I think is is quite important in a national basis that, um, that that we don't have the amount of skilled people to go in and uh, and do stuff that I do, you know, which isn't even the most complex end. And uh, it would be a really good thing strategically to, to get that education, just so people are exposed, so they think, okay, this, I could do this, or, you know, the, this might be of interest, rather than it appearing like a scary science, like a physics or something, which isn't going to appeal to everyone. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, that, that those computer skills would be really, really a good life skill. Yeah, well, if we're going to live so much of our lives online, we, you know, mm. it really would help if people had an idea of how to how to construct that online as much as like mm. just exist in it. You know, that's the thing. Of if we can, if we're just, I think uh, there's a guy called Douglas Rushkoff, I think his name is, who wrote a book called Program or Be Programmed, <laughs> uh, and I think that kind of it's a nice line. I, th- I often mm. I often think about it. Um, because it, it really is that if you don't if you're walking around a world that you have no way of creating then then, mm. then you really are are at other people's mercies rather rather than ha- having some agency there yeah yes mm. yeah I mean that's that's a really interesting point I mean I guess when you were growing up when you so at school there wasn't much in the way of computer stuff I guess no there were there were two computers in my school and one came out on ticker tape and I think the other one oh, the other one was I think it was on cassette. So you had to feed this cassette in, and then that, that would have all the uh, the digital encoding on. So it was, it was supremely primitive, and there were two machines that were way oversubscribed. So it wasn't even that attractive. You couldn't do much with them, even if you could write the most basic of programs. So I never actually got involved, and there was no O level or whatever GCSE equivalent. There was there was nothing available, as far as I was aware at the time. I don't think it was on the curriculum. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it was, it was similar-ish for me. And I was you you graduated in '86. Mm-hmm. I mean, in '86, I was five. Mm-hmm. So I guess we technically were different generations. There wasn't in school like when I was at school. There wasn't very many computers at all either. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my family was my dad was quite an early adopter of, yes. of computers. So we did have computers um, from early on. But people now, you know, who are born now, this, this, we, I, I sound, we both sound like dinosaurs, don't we? We're mm, sort of mm. like talking about a world that, that isn't even, you know, it, it's so much more advanced in terms of computers. Like everyone's mm. got a really massively advanced computer in their pocket now. Mm. So it is kind of, it is an interesting world that, that has developed from, from that. But you were also, I mean, I at school, my dad ran the chess club at school. Okay, yes. Uh, so he, he taught you. Well, going back to my story last week, right? That's this is where I was sort of was, was coming into, yeah, yeah. Because your story from last week was about chess. Like it's it's you know chess clubs. I don't. I doubt there's chess. I don't know. Maybe there are chess clubs now. But oh, it's yeah, seemed, yeah. It seems much more like like because 
chess way of thinking is quite good preparation for, for thinking about computers, would you say? I don't know. Am I just trying to make a connection here? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any uh, necessary overlap. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfectly fine. I quite often no, try and uh, try and throw <laughs> <just laughs> in a link. See if I've got any uh, wisdom on that. I mean, the, the, the last conversation that we've we, that we've lost had such a natural progression that it's it's going to be hard to, to recreate that. <laughs> you might try and deliberately avoid it. Just yeah, to I'm trying. Well, I'm trying things. to go a different direction, and then I'll, we'll get back there. I shall, um, I'll, I'll play you at chess maybe during the rest of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk through the game, right? I mean, yeah, for me, I mean, my dad was into chess to a certain extent. He, he ran chess club. I went there a few times and enjoyed it. I enjoy chess. I, I still do enjoy chess, but it's never been a passion and it's never been anything I've been very good at, particularly. I'm, I'm average at chess. I learned it not from my dad. I learned it from my granddad. Well, and my dad, probably both. But my mm-hmm. granddad is the person I remember going to and he would always beat us at chess. You know, that would yeah. be the, the dynamic. And that's the dynamic you have with your dad, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I, apparently, I learned at four, and but yeah, I think I got quite good. Uh, I don't know, maybe eleven, twelve, thirteen, and my, my strong period was in those teenage years, and and it was an intense passion. You know, you I would play chess loads every day at school, and then at uh, the chess club uh, at uh, Sutton Coalfield, where we lived in Birmingham. I think that might have been a couple of nights a week, and then playing in in Birmingham leagues, and um, uh, obviously playing for the school. And yeah, I, I got a lot of enjoyment from that. I think there was a bit when I reached a peak, probably around 15, uh, 14, 15. And uh, I was aware that you had to put a lot more work in. You just had to learn tons of stuff by rote to, to progress to the next level, which basically is, is the opening moves. You just need to know uh, a huge amount of uh, early opening strategy to, to compete at a better level. And I think I knew that I perhaps not quite the way my head works. I didn't have the discipline for that, and perhaps there was also an, an awareness that maybe I'd reached a sort of ceiling of I, I could see that there were people who were just better than me, right? And, and may, maybe that dented my enthusiasm. My ego couldn't quite cope with that, um, and, and then I, I got distracted with other things, homework and girls, and being a teenager probably became slightly more attractive than hanging around with the men because I think they were all men at the chess club. So, so yeah, I, I, chess clubs probably still go and still attract that niche. It's not not something that's going to grow to a, a huge mass audience. We're not going to have a, a World Cup of chess where everyone looks at the games. It's uh, uh, no, I mean there was a period, wasn't there? There was a period where there was like Gary Kasparov. Or, or, there was a few sort of like famous chess players. Oh uh, yeah, back uh, in the day, but it certainly it certainly isn't. You know, it's 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 not making the money that FIFA is. <laughs> well, it's probably, there's money in chess yeah, if you're extremely sure. good. Um, not Nigel Short is a, is a year younger than me, which always annoyed me because he was, you know, some master and then grandmaster and uh, uh, was appearing on the sort of national stage as this uh, child prodigy. And um, even though I was good, I was thinking, well, you'd never be that good. And yeah, and, and when he when he got uh, when he challenged Kasparov, I think there was a. An idea that they they could somehow market that you know this British player playing this game, but mm. that the game doesn't really translate outside of people who don't you know who aren't aware of, of the rules. Right. It, it's not. You, it's not a spectator sport. Not at all. I mean, it, you know, absolutely not. I mean, I I really enjoy chess, but it's you know if, if you're sitting in a room watching some people play chess, it's you know boring mm. uh, and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's something I would probably find more interesting, but I haven't played chess for a long time. But but it's an interesting thing because there's a huge gulf between even the club players and these super top level players. So you you would see what they're doing on the board, but that they would still surprise you with stuff that they're doing, uh, even if you understand the moves. The thinking behind yeah, it is I mean, amazing. A lot of chess is about like you can see, you know, once you if you make the wrong move early on. It's kind of sometimes it's inevitable that you're going to lose, and like mm. people who know the game so well can go right. Well, I'm just going to resign now because mm. <laughs> I know that I'm going to be beaten in in ten ten moves or whatever. Yes, yeah. That there is that kind of inevitable logical progression of it. Like mm. you know, there's a maths behind it, yes. which I think is always my sort of barrier point. You know, I I I, I like games to be. Chess has got a lot of rules and a lot of interestingness about it that makes it appeal. Mm. But then at a certain point, I'm like, well, I can't make these characters fly. You know, mm. like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't change this narrative. This narrative is a set world, and I can't, yes. I can't mm. interfere with it. But when you, but when you uh, told your chess story, one of the things I thought was really engaging about it was that you had been playing up against, you know, up against adults, mm. and you kind of had this, uh, as it, the Schadenfreude of, uh, of of beating them and mm. them expecting to beat you, but you mm. having had this kind of, and it sounds like I can imagine like, you know, it's like the dream 11 year old boy experience of like, you know, I went, I went and I challenged all of the adults and beat them, mm. you know? Yeah, no, it was uh, <laughs> rewarding. I was aware I was, you know, I was more dangerous as a chess player than a lot of the adults would have expected. Uh, and, and I, I did talk about the fact it's um, there is that gladiatorial thing that uh, that comes down to sort of just two people fighting over this neutral space in the middle, and you need to have this killer instinct. Yeah, where, where there's that boundary between enjoying someone else's suffering as much as you're enjoying your your victory, and I think part of that is because losing is so miserable when you're on the other end of it, and and you know you need to inflict that to to, to beat the person opposite. And, and so it is really great when you feel you've got the edge and, and you can pick up subtle signs, you know, someone twitching a bit or a bit awkward or, you know, you're aware you're very close to them. So, so you can be aware of when you're having an effect and they're clearly struggling. And uh, yeah, that, that teenage chess player could be pretty evil on the board. And, uh, but that, that's the nature of the game. But then afterwards, you, you, you finish the game and invariably... You, you'll be with your opponent and you'll go back through the game and you'll talk through bits that were interesting. Why did you do that move? Why did that, you know, and that went wrong. And so, so it's, it's not like you're enemies or anything afterwards. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a sort of quite a, an even shared space that becomes an intellectual debate that, you know, you can learn from going through what you've just done. But yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah, uh, almost those teenage years, chess would have been a big, a big part of it. Let's now try and go back through the big story that we captured so well uh, that now we're going to try and capture again. So after you were playing chess and after you were learning about computers, you graduated, you got a job. Uh, You didn't know where you were going in your life, but Mm -hmm. you knew you were going somewhere. Yes. Graduating with a computing degree made it very easy to get jobs in 86. There's no way around that. I don't think I was... uh a fantastic proposition to all the companies, but there was just a big demand for people with uh, with a computing degree. So yeah, I chose a firm uh, called NCR, in, uh, who were in central London, uh, just near Baker Street. And I worked there for three years doing 
technical stuff with banks and building societies um, trying to sell them equipment and um, and that was great you know it was uh, I was I was young I was in London it was uh, it was fun still about Ealing in 89 I think it was probably late 88 I was getting some subtle health symptoms that were very hard to pin down they would almost be something you would think uh, not you were imagining but uh, for an example I I used to work on the fourth floor up at my office and uh, that was where my desk was but I used to uh, have the equipment that I was uh, configuring down in the basement and so as a 22 23 year old you just run up and down the stairs without even thinking about it and I remember I was getting up to the second flight and having to rest there and being really out of breath and thinking that's a bit odd and then going up to the top level the the fourth floor and struggling to talk to people because I hadn't sort of got my breath together and I felt a bit lightheaded and getting a few tests at the doctors I was aware something was a bit odd and I was tested for uh, glandular fever um, and perhaps a variety of other blood tests that might have shown anything up but nothing came back so it was strange looking back how you reconcile that because clearly something odd was happening that shouldn't have been occurring but when it's happened for like a month or two it almost becomes like a normal thing you sort of stop thinking about it it becomes this normal pattern of behavior and I, I sort of carried on probably over a six-month period with just little subtle things that were occurring that were quite hard to pin down and almost embarrassing to go to a doctor again and say actually there's something else that's weird uh, a bit of digestion stuff I used, to, I, used to, <laughs> I used to have weird hangover symptoms that would last for about two days after not drinking very much uh, compared with my normal alcohol intake uh, of that age again you can't quite go to the doctor my hangovers are worse while stop drinking right. um, so I became properly ill uh, there was a point when I drove from my firm's headquarters on Marabon Road with a whole load of computers in a car and um, installed them down at Bristol in a building society and that day was just exhausting I remember feeling more and more ill and it, it might have felt a bit like flu or something and I, I was staying in a hotel down in Bristol and I went back to there that evening and just felt dreadful but I also had a rash that had developed all over my torso and I I had this deep knowledge that I don't know why I just knew this but I knew that what what happened that day was part of what had been going on and building for the last six months and it just seemed true so that night I it's like a scary night I wasn't quite sure what to do I wasn't dying or anything but I knew I was ill and it was almost like I knew it was a strange thing perhaps I, I knew I couldn't quite carry on I needed to do something something was manifesting that um, that I had to sort of deal with so the next day I drove very early back to my parents who were in Birmingham and sort of turned up on their doorstep I think I might have phoned them beforehand and just said look I'm ill which <laughs> must have been an interesting thing for them to uh, uh, to deal with and you know they were great and just sort of took me in and we you know uh, worked out um, what I should be doing uh, there was my local doctors who I've been with uh, since I was a kid and um, they ran very similar tests and over the next few months it became clear that I didn't have anything fatal there were lots of x-rays and other things that were taken just to see if there was anything sinister as they uh, 
praised it. So sort of the, the cancers and leukemias and um, other things that were banded around as vague possibilities were thrown out and the ME was the thing left, this dustbin diagnosis, once they couldn't think what else it could be. ME was something that they were reluctant to tell me it was ME. Uh, it still wasn't that recognised and probably there was a generation of doctors who, who'd never had it during the whole of their training. It wasn't something they'd learned about. Uh, it was something that was becoming more familiar. Um, the, the press uh, uh, misnamed it uh, yuppie flu around that time. Um, but there, there, were, there was a higher incidence of people going down with this strange illness that just wiped people out, much in the same way glandular fever does. Um, and after about six months, I had this diagnosis that, yes, gave me something to identify with and, and focus on to fight, I suppose, as much right. as one could. Um, and, and I suppose, yeah, pushed the other sinister thoughts to the background. But, but in itself, that wasn't a, a great thing to have to uh, deal with. And it's a strange period of time as well that expands beyond any of your previous experiences that childhood colds or flus I think I had mumps as a kid and might have had a couple of weeks off I hadn't had any longer period of incapacity and when you get beyond a week of illness and there's really no sign of improvement and then two weeks and then a month and at the end of the month you're thinking wow if I'm better after three months that's okay your sort of horizons extend and then you know you get to six months and you think well I've got no better. In fact, I've got worse. What, what, what's what's involved here? You know, what what timescales realistically am I thinking about? Uh, the the job let me go, and um, you're on sort of some uh, benefits, and and then left to get on with it. Really, there wasn't anything on the table that you could take in terms of um, a remedy or a pill or any other type of therapy. Um, you just had to struggle to, to to deal with the symptoms and um and and try and see if there was anything out there that would help and what were those symptoms i mean what what, what you you uh, high level of fatigue i guess yes uh yeah the, it's it's hard to convey yeah uh, this is the thing isn't it even to myself now as i think back but the the words fatigue um, chronic fatigue syndrome. Fatigue is just such a weak word that people would understand fatigue, and it's not like that. There's an overwhelming debilitation. It's just something that you can't push through in a way that you might be able to. Even if you're fatigued, you can probably, you know, a well person will still be able to do things. And it's just not like that. You do more, and you feel worse. And I, I always liken it to the. Uh, uh, some evil combination of um, jet lag and a hangover and flu. And if you think of the worst days at flu, where, where you can't think, you can't concentrate sometimes, it's hard just forming words on the phone and uh, reading documents and uh, other things. You know, you, you, you go back to bed, you just, right. you, you're not going to be able to function. Yeah, I mean, everyone always says about the flu, you know you've really got the flu if you can't get out of bed, right? Yes. And so yeah. this is, a, this is a, one of those kind of a, a situations mm. where you really can't get out of bed. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and you, you can, you know, push yourself with flu a certain degree but yeah with with the ME the, the more you push you tend to worsen the symptoms 
overdoing things can just make things worse for a number of days afterwards. It's a, a very cruel equation. Um, so you learn not to push too much, and and it just doesn't go. Your your body enters this other. If you think of full health as being some equilibrium where this body's some uh, uh, benign ecosystem that hopefully fends off illnesses and keeps you working as most of us would expect. The ME seems to be this other equilibrium where your body isn't falling over. You're not you're not dying from it. You're not decaying as such, apart from age maybe. But it functions at this level that you, you can't do anything. You don't have the energy or capacity to think as you once used to and concentrate and physically you, you're just... It varies with people uh, 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 to a large degree, but that fundamental thing of just not being able to do stuff because your body just doesn't allow it. And, and, and that equilibrium can carry on for years and years and years. There's a fair amount of people who, who get something quite severe like that and they can get better after a couple of years. A couple of years is, is a relatively common thing, <laughs> probably because I, I know more about the ME world because I was in it. And you hear stories about someone mm. who has this thing that's beyond a glandular fever thing. It seems to be this bigger episode of uh, of illness and if you get beyond two years this isn't science or stuff this is partly anecdotal but I think most ME people would have heard similar things that the longer it goes on normally the longer it would take to shift and it can become generally set in uh, there's there's people I used to live up in Oxfordshire uh, during that earlier part of the illness and uh, through the ME groups in Oxford I got to know a bunch of people and there's there's many of those good friends of mine who are, who are still ill and are still as when I first met them in probably 91 and that's always uh, tough actually I, I have this is probably sound a bit over glamorous but um, I, I have a weird survivor's guilt that uh, I, I, I hear about in the context you know there's a bomb blast and someone next to you dies and you don't and you have this uh, perhaps need to try and understand why why fate or circumstance made that happen, and people can find it hard to um, to cope with the fact that they they've walked away when someone immediate. I mean, perhaps you know someone someone they care about. It could be a stranger hasn't been as lucky, and uh, yeah, when when I, I'm just aware that when I meet my friends from from that time, I'm aware that my my story is different and I've I've got back to um, uh, you know this level of health and uh, I can sometimes feel a bit self-conscious when you just hello how are you doing how are you doing and I'll, I'll talk about all the stuff I've been doing and I'm aware it's stuff that they they can't they don't right have the ability to do all that and they, they, it's not like they bear grudges or anything this is this is my own thing entirely but and I suppose part of that's just a, a wish that you know that they could find a way out of it in the same way that I'd done. Um, I, I don't really understand the, the mechanism uh, that, that allowed me to escape from the uh, the illness in a way that would be useful as a programme to tell anyone else. Right. But yes, yeah, I'm aware that, uh, yeah, it, it, I guess, yeah, it's perhaps that thinking, yeah, if, if I was still that ill, it, it would be a, a tough thing to, to deal with. You know, at 91, we're talking, what, 20, 23 years of illness and more. Yeah, um, although you had you had quite a, quite a, a chunk of time though that, that you had 
that you were suffering kind of from M- ME4 though I mean oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean you know and I know I know it's not as bad as it could have been but it was pretty yes. bad uh, yeah I mean I know this from having just talked to you about <laughs> uh, yeah yeah I, I think that the, the thing I say about the illness is that I was unlucky to get ill and I was lucky to get well and I, I do mean that lucky to get well it is almost the stronger thing than right. the bad luck initially. That was the better piece of luck because, um, yeah, I don't really know why I, I, I was able to do that. But yeah, I mean, I, I was ill. The, the 90s, we talked about the 90s being rubbish because I was largely sidelined by the illness. Yeah, and... I said it was a good decade to miss. <laughs> uh, I slept through it. Uh, whatever the 90s will be known as, I think that the decades get uh, tags over time when you look back, don't yeah. they? And I think they're always romanticised more than they probably deserve. And we talked about the 60s earlier. I, I, was, I was a child in the 60s, but um, I sometimes think that whenever you're young, and especially when you're a teenager and all those influences and uh, your independence starts to um, take hold, then stuff goes in much deeper it's much more of a primal experience it sort of forms you on some level so i think people looking back to their childhood which just happened to be in a certain decade are going to think that you know there was more happening there was a certain energy or something yeah but i think we also think we missed out on something that we probably didn't yeah that you know we're we're, we are where we are in our experience and uh living in a previous decade i don't think would have somehow made it rosier or that's uh, very true i mean whatever decade you're missing you're still missing a decade and yeah it's a it's a it's a a joke to say oh you missed a good decade but there's no there's no good way of missing 10 years of your life really oh no not in that way no i was thinking more (laughs) that a a previous decade when you look back comes from a newsreel doesn't it rather than from everyone's experience right my parents talk about the 60s and it was mainly bringing up uh, myself and my sister right in a completely normal suburban environment it yeah. wasn't some crazy uh, well it took a while for the 60s to get across the uk as far as i understand as well so like some people were experiencing uh, yes. the, the early 60s in <laughs> you know in the 70s yes um and that, that's that's and that's no doubt the case mm. for the 90s uh, with yes. the 80s to be honest mm. i mean you can definitely see the early like the first couple of years of the 90s has been kind of where a lot of people experienced the last couple of years of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But so during that, during those 90s, you you weren't immersed in, particularly in the, in pop culture, you were immersed in, 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 in dealing with uh, ex- the experience of having ME mm. uh, long-term, long-term for you, for, mm. which compared to how long I've had it, for, which is not no time at all. It's masses of time that you've had it. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's strange thinking back into those uh, times. Uh, I, I, again, should keep on referring back to a conversation that uh, no one has heard, but we had earlier. <laughs> but th- this, is, this is not a period I think back to very often. It doesn't sort of occur. And I don't have a reason not to speak about it, but it, you know, it doesn't come up in conversation. Sometimes it's surprising when I, I do relate to what happened. It's like some distant other person. Uh, there's that sort of slight removal from it, uh, and yet clearly it was me. And m- maybe that's the same if anyone thinks back, uh, whatever it was, 25 years or so. But yeah, it was a very different existence. And uh, yeah, the, the the first three years I would sort of characterise as pretty much room bound. Um, getting down a single flight of stairs would exhaust me, and I my sister was always really horrified when. Uh, 
early on in the illness when I said TV was too exhausting to watch and she was thinking that is it really that bad you can't even watch TV you know what what can you do and most of the day was spent uh, resting and, and generally feeling ill the whole day it wasn't just a you know um, resting when you got tired when when you were <laughs> at your best you still felt rubbish um, so that's quite a long time to uh, uh, to go through that I, th- I think there was an initial adjustment period that I mentioned that sort of six months but when you get beyond that and you're just so limited in anything you can do yeah there's a certain time it takes to acclimatize to that that I I seem to do by by living in this sort of short-term bubble where you'll just you would just wake up and, and think about the day what you're going to do that day uh, that wouldn't be very much but it was always too much to entertain the the bigger thoughts of the life you were missing the the um this little cage that you were living in that had been forced upon you and and you know other things you might be expected to do things that your friends and peer group were doing clearly weren't available to me and I, I think I made that conscious choice to to have to ignore that to to just live in this little world as, as a way of getting through that time and and hoping something would would turn up yeah the deep thoughts were, were too much so uh, I'm happy in the shallow end and I one of the, the key things that kept me going uh, if not sane through that uh, that initial phase was uh, uh, was drawing and I'd done I hadn't uh, done done it at school but uh, one of my close friends at the university used to do these fantastic pencil drawings and I remember I tried some sort of like sort of pencil portraits of people under his uh, tutelage and, and discovered I could do more than I imagined I was capable of and when I was ill I just thought I'll I'll illustrate a children's story and over three years I produced these sort of very detailed watercolour and ink illustrations. Some days I could just do a tiny fragment, a little animal or, or some plant uh, or, or even just a, a plan for the next illustration that, that I'd be thinking of and it was important for me to leave footsteps that I could look behind and, and see that there was something that proved I existed I think. There's a there's, there's stuff I experienced and learnt during that period that there wasn't some you know special wisdom or anything that uh, it was just something that was forced upon me at an earlier age that I'd never considered before. Other people were were, were gaining all sorts of life experiences with kids and uh, things that were going on, but but the, the challenge and the thing that confronted me was I guess to be deprived of all the trappings and badges that I'd become used to and I suppose the things that gave myself value the the slightly hollow things that give yourself value when all those are gone uh, you've got no job you you know you've got no social life there's nothing you're doing or contributing to anyone else's life you know your family are there because they love you and stuff but you know there's nothing tangible that you're you're doing in a, in a practical sense that a job gives you some feedback or if you're doing a worthwhile job uh helping people you've got even more feedback that there was none of that and i 
I remember having images of um, just some little tiny candle in the middle of a sort of black wilderness, and you're almost reduced to this tiny little thing that you've got to hang on to, to what you are, to what makes you love yourself, uh, if, if that's not too, um, too fanciful, to, to give yourself value when there's nothing external that's, that's doing that for you, which is partly a change of the, the pattern of your previous life. You know, you, you, you work towards stuff at school and, you know, everything's in this very linear way of you know, unplanned way, but uh, moving forward into different stages of your life. And I guess I'd never thought outside of that. And that was tough. But then you... I got to a stage where... I realised there was something to value in there that could sort of give me an identity and make myself feel important enough to care about, perhaps. And, and maybe that, you know, I, I had that that vision inside of me that that helped convey me through that period. Because, because uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're also incredibly isolated. You can barely uh, hold a conversation for very long. So, so communicating and stuff is is difficult and. Uh, you know, sharing any of those ideas that I must say I don't really talk about with anyone. It's weird talking about it now. That yeah, you have this internal headspace. You know, you are still able to think, even if you couldn't. You know, concentrate on something interesting like a chess problem, uh, and and that internal dialogue needs to somehow keep you going. The Childs illustration, I think, gave me a a focus, something to hang value on. But I think in in doing that, I, I sort of learned more about perhaps the value of living, you know, and the, the things that boil down to, you know, your relationships with people and, and, and just um, valuing yourself at some level. So, so yeah, anyway, the, the, the children's illustrations were, were a, a fairly vital, almost accidental thing that I bumped into as some occupational therapy to sustain me through that period and, and feel that I got something. And indeed, right. I did turn up at the end of that three years with a, a whole children's book which is now up in my loft, and uh, the, it was never. It, we, we tried to get it published, but uh, it didn't quite get past the uh, editorial desks of various um, publishing companies when, when I got round to submitting it, which, which would have been a, a lovely ending. I, I might still um, publish it on the Kindle or digital media now, right? Um, yeah, yeah, just to get it out there. To be honest, it's not like something I'm thinking that's a career, but uh, it would be a, a satisfying thing just to say. It's there as some sort of yeah. statement. If and if people enjoy it, then that's great. Yeah, and that, so I mean, and so you made you 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 drew that book, and around about I mean, so I know this from our past conversation, but around about when you'd finished that book was around you'd started to be able to walk further from your house, mm-hmm. um, and so you were you you you'd sort of started to build up. Uh, a kind of resistance to the the ME that you were experiencing, mm. but there were, but it didn't kind of go as it didn't go as plain sailing as it, it started to feel like it was. So. Uh, yeah, I had a rough eighteen month period when things just started to improve almost at a, such a small level you were hardly aware of them day to day, and it's that, that thing where you look back three months on and go, "Wow, I'm actually doing a bit more," and that picked up um, to a point when I was walking out in the fields with my lovely dog we had at the time, um, walking for three quarters of an hour, an hour, um, with really quite a, a physical, you know, vigorous walk um, that was hugely satisfying. It was amazing to feel that 
freedom and that physicality that has been denied for so long there was this joy of just walking out in this uh, Oxfordshire com- countryside and throwing sticks for the dog and meeting the neighbours and uh, the, the village was sort of friendly you got to know everyone in the village and that was um, that was great and then um, uh, the children's stories um, came back to bite me because I uh, through a friend's uh, daughter who was in a local school uh, I think it was the end of terms so it must have been you know sort of late June or something um, they wanted things to entertain the kids who were probably kids about seven or eight years old so um, she thought it'd be a fun idea to go in with my children's illustrations and just talk the kids through the story and I became like a, an art teacher for the afternoon which was fun because then the kids all did things based on my stories and I went round the class and watched as they sort of copied the characters I'd done and uh, that was great. But I think I went down with a couple of bugs from there. About two or three days later I was struggling and right. that wrote me off for another three or four years with another fairly severe bout of whatever my immune system couldn't cope with. And it was like a, a different set of symptoms, it was like a different condition it was it was still emmy at the root cause but there were different things going on it was uh, quite a cruel twist so you just got used to one started getting rid of those mm. symptoms and then suddenly you've got some very very similar but very different symptoms as well so yes you, you just learn the codes and then you've got new a new a new system to to, to work out yeah it's, it's perhaps like a life thing isn't it you think you understand it all and you've got it sorted right something. sure yeah. <laughs> a bit of reality comes on and you're uh, your delusions are exposed as such. So, so yeah, it was... yeah, and so you and you went. So you so you had a kind of resurgence of, of, of the experience of having ME, but you but you eventually got out of that as like to a point where you are now pretty much recovered, right? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, like, what was the what was the last sort of slog of your of your journey like? It was uh, a long, slow slog. I came down to London. My sister. Uh, I think realised that I needed to play with the idea of being independent again, and uh, she was away on tour with uh, theatre. She does uh, stage management stuff, and um, well, whilst on tour, her flat in London was vacant. So I came down as a, a test to see if I could survive that and cope with just the basics, you know, sort of just cooking and shopping and things just to get by, and and that worked well. And I, I realised I needed to to make a life change in that regard. My parents have been fantastic, but the, it was time to uh, become less institutionalised and move out. And um, and then I was referred to Bart's and they had a programme of uh, gradual exercise therapy and CBT. And the combination of those two really worked for me at the time. Living with ME forces you to be quite controlled about what you do because you know that if you if you do too much you're going to be wiped out and you're going to be even worse than uh, than you might be at the moment to uh, uh, for, for a few days so you, you're you become very familiar with with certain sort of boundaries of how long you can do something or how far you can walk you know if you're more real how, how long a phone call can be all these things add up and uh, you, you need to police that because otherwise uh, it goes wrong. And the through the BART programme, I started to push at the edges of those boundaries. And the I'll, I'll repeat the phrase that I talked about earlier with uh, with Dave was the, the the CBT guy would 
whenever I, I, I said, I can't do this, um, I, I, I can walk this far, but I can't walk any further. And he would say, well, if you just did 5% more, what's the worst that can happen? And, and it's still something I think about today. It's, it's still a, a really useful phrase for when we some, sometimes put things in front of ourselves yeah. that, that become something we can't see past. And, and perhaps taking it in a, in a small chunks makes it easier but uh, or, or sort of breaks down the impermeability of that barrier that you've put up. And, and my barriers were quite strong with what I was and wasn't doing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I think that there was a, a potential uh, level of energy that I had that I probably wasn't tapping into. And my body was doing something that, um, that, that was open to, to being pushed further. And, uh, and, and over a number of years, it was much slower than the people at Bart's wanted because that, that control is a big thing with Emmy. Control's completely taken away from you. It's, it's a volatile illness that day to day, you've got no idea what's going to happen. You'll wake up and you'll feel rubbish. Uh, the next day you'll feel good. There's no sometimes cause and effect that you can identify with that. And so when you impose some control and you've got some level of existence that's livable, even if it's got um, these boundaries around it, then that can become yeah some, something that you that 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 gives you some control back. This was a way of me keeping control, I suppose, about just nudging those boundaries very very slowly. So the uh, walking was my thing that I, I would you know be walking for five minutes and then. CBTI guy would say, so what's the worst that would happen if you walk five and a half? And then uh, I would do that. He'd be up to six, he'd be up to seven, over a period of months. And then over a couple of years, I think I was up to around 20 minutes. And then it sort of increased uh, more rapidly, I think, as my health and body was starting to wake up and my immune system or whatever had gone wrong was uh, working out what it should be doing. Uh, until you were suddenly at a level where you were thinking, wow, you know, maybe I'm, I'm getting out of this again. Uh, let's, let's see what happens. And, and vertigo, you get this, uh, uh, as, as you do that extra bit of walking, it's like some unknown dangerous territory, like you're walking into some crocodile swamp and, uh, and you can, as, as I used to count lampposts, you used to walk along, you'd know how far, which lamppost right. you got to. And the next lamppost would seem quite daunting and uh, so that was the vertigo bit you'd be walking to that next lap post even though you've got the CBT guy saying what's the worst that can happen you'd still think yeah it still might go wrong <laughs> I still might go back years so um, so yeah I did it in a slow and steady manner and, and without really understanding any of the, uh, the the things that might be contributing towards the recovery uh, at a you know, biochemical or whatever level I, I came through it that particular thing that they do at Bart, I think they still do something very similar now. doesn't work for everyone. I think I was just lucky that it happened at the right time for me and uh, other people I know have not only had bad results from it, some people have been made worse. Yeah, it's quite... You were saying before it was quite a controversial oh, yeah. uh, mm. treatment for me. Uh, yeah, there, there are people I know who wouldn't particularly <laughs> like what I'm saying. It's my truth, you know. It's my story. I uh, I have no um, uh, nothing. I'm I'm pushing or um, right. suggesting. Uh, I'm as bewildered by by my medical history 
as anyone else. I don't really understand anything, and I'm not saying this is an answer, but but yeah, some people are vehemently opposed to. There's a lot of psychiatrists who who've become involved with Emmy over the years, trying to claim things about what's going on that that don't ring true with virtually everyone who's got the illness. Right. And and so there, the even if the thing I I was a program I was on does give benefit from some people it doesn't benefit a lot of other people and there's a lot of funds that go into some of these programs that might be better spent on other bits of research and management um, there's issues around that and also the that the BART's program was quite narrow in that it dealt with a, a niche of the ME people who could actually get into BART's and that that would not be possible for a whole bunch of people. So when 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 various figures are thrown about about how their success rates are really high, they might be high with that certain group of people who can get in there. So yeah, that their stats are also a contentious thing of how successful they are because the you know you're you're aware that they're also building some empire in their uh, in their medical area some reputation and right. stuff and um that what what one could suspect that that might cloud some you know some some figures when they come to publish it without looking at it too closely and me itself is is a collection of conditions isn't it so there there isn't even a precise diagnosis for each individual experiencing it so there's yes. probably a collection of different illnesses that we're trying to Solve and so it makes mm. absolute sense that no, no, no approach is going to work for everybody. Yes, uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It could be a collection of different <clears throat> things. Uh, they understand more. There's a load of tests and scans that right. can show stuff, but it doesn't give the whole picture. Uh, it doesn't give a, a diagnostic test or a cure. It seems that some areas of science are advancing so fast that they might bump into something. Right, you know, some bit of cancer <laughs> research might. Uh, uh, there's been instances where, uh, within the ME world, that you uh, you hear of some cancer research, for instance, where they've tried something and it's failed, and they've obviously put resources and money into it, and they think, oh, maybe I'll try it on the ME group, and then they find something quite interesting, <laughs> right? But, but there's very little direct research that goes into ME by because it's not a terminal illness, and it's also not. Uh, there's quite a lot of stigma around it. People don't take it seriously, etc. Like a lot of mm. other conditions, uh, that yeah, like like mental health conditions or whatever, mm. or also yes. don't get taken seriously. Although it's important to it's important to note that this, that that ME is a physiological thing, but so is, so is mental health. Probably mm. a lot of that. I mean, yes. You were saying that, uh, kind of suggesting in our previous version of this conversation mm. that uh, that. As science goes on, so many things that we think are are, are not physiological turn out to mm. have a physiological element or to be that. And, and, and so as we go on finding mm. out what it is to be human scientifically, we, yes. we, we may very well discover um, a lot of things are, are mm. uh, yeah, from our from our body's physiology rather than from from uh, from outside forces kind of impacting mm. on our, our mental health, although. Yeah, your your brain is still part of your body. I mean, and so oh, yeah. and so as we're mapping the neuroscience of the human brain, mm. that 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 offers us lots of uh, medical solutions as well as psych, psych mm. psychiatric. No, 
the psychologist. Yeah, I always get mixed up between psychiatrists and psychologists. One one of them, yes. Gets, psychiatrists can can prescribe, and so psychologists can't. So so that's probably the area that a lot of stuff um, gets chalked up to talking therapies and stuff. Maybe there are lots of more medical solutions. I don't know. I'd like there to be. Yes, yeah, it must have an easy fix if there it, was. Such it would a be thing. great if and to not have to track down the uh, the root cause of my psychological issues, and I can just take a pill and that will solve it all. That would be great. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. But brain <laughs> I suspect it's not as simple as either. You know, I, I suspect it's never going to be as simple as here's a here's a, a solution for everybody. It's mm. always going to be whatever the condition. Yes, it's going to be a mixture of different approaches, and different people are going to respond differently to different things. I, I, generally speaking, I. I I think that's probably the best approach to medicine, mm. but it's a. I, I understand why it doesn't appeal as well. It's 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 if you're going to treat everybody differently, there's a lot of time and uh, money and resources going into that mm. that maybe doesn't work on a practical yes. level. Yeah, yeah. Well, looking after a whole health system, it doesn't really work. Right. There's someone who's doing research or particularly interested, they're uh, looking for general solutions. Yeah. You want to, you you know, everybody wants to follow a, a criteria, tick that off that criteria, and then yeah, that that works. Mm. Uh, and it it's not as simple as that, but but for a for a whole system, it can be statistically as simple as that. But there's yes. always those people who aren't mm. <laughs> who don't who aren't part of the statistics to get better. Yes, and mm. I guess with me, it seems that that, that the whole area is part of the statistics that, that, that they don't have a solution for, that they don't have a, mm. a an approach that consistently works. Right? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, and that will carry on. I, I think it will be other areas of science that uh, probably unlock bigger questions or are able to examine more bits of brain chemistry in a working brain, which is, is, is so hard, or bits of genetic stuff that then someone might think, oh, yeah, we could maybe run a few tests on some ME people and it might start to show up interesting things. Yeah. But uh, I've sort of heard that for the last <laughs> 20 years and more. So uh, uh, even though things have advanced, uh, one should assume nothing. I mean, the, the, I guess the thing that, that makes it kind of resonate for, for me now is that, that you know, we, we're living in a society where benefits are being taken away from people who have disabilities of, of any kind. Um, ME is already an area where people don't take it as seriously and it's getting... Mm. Like, that, that's the areas where people are likely to be pushed out of of mm. the system and be in very, very kind of dire straits. And, and, and uh, on a human level, like, people forget that there's very, very little separating any able-bodied person and a mm. disabled person. Uh, it's just a day. Mm. Or for, for you, it was a, a gradual period of time. Um, and that could happen to any able-bodied person. Yes. Um, but also, it could be, you know, you walk out of your, your front door and you get hit by a car mm. and, the ne- and you have a, a completely different life. And if we don't, if we don't look after those people who... Because you, you had the, the, mm. the, the network to look after to you at least mm. you had the yes. family mm. you were eventually taken seriously by the medical practitioners mm. as well which doesn't happen to everybody yes mm. and so it really is a, a situation where you know I, these stories are very interesting 
on a human level for everybody I hope listening but I, I also hope that when I do have people who have disabilities or illnesses on the show it helps to remind people how how, how close it, mm. we all are to that whether whether it matters if I remind everybody that's listening that that's because they're not making the policy but believe it so yes yeah it's like whatever we say it's uh things reach our, uh, our our small audience of friends and stuff and unless you do have some some stage to stand on to uh, to get politicians or people to listen and even if that would change anything the, the benefit system is is particularly evil uh, with with me that it is i mean it's recognized it's recognized by the world health organization it's recognized by the dss and the medical profession in this country but how that then distills down to the um the, the the all work test or whatever they've got now with the um, the way the benefit system are changing is changing it it's it's particularly cruel for me because uh, there's people with permanent disabilities that are, that are fixed and doctors can measure those and they they can they can see uh, what it is you know someone with a um, a back problem someone with no legs that could probably just about diagnose that. Um, but with ME, where the symptoms change over time, day to day, never mind month to month, and also are hard to verify. Someone comes in and says, "This is what happens," and the uh, it's it's their testimony, and it's even their testimony, even if if some consultant from a hospital backs it up. And many, many people with ME have been thrown not uh, into the uh, proper disability benefits that uh, other people have but into this sort of middle category where they have to either get work in a in a year um, or go into some program where they're starting to apply for jobs and all that sort of stuff um, yeah. or, or or actually prove that they are well yeah it's just so disempowering that, that there's very little that you can do to fight this this kafka-like system that that throws up rules and uh and and is also implemented in, in, I know ATOS have uh, just been uh, thrown out of the contract they've had to assess the um, uh, the people coming in. But I've actually been in interviews, not for myself, but uh, with my girlfriend who, who has ME, and had uh, perhaps half an hour, three quarters of an hour with one of these ATOS doctors and then seen the report afterwards that that just lies, that, that, that hasn't represented anything that's happened during the consultation and, and it's, it's just astounding when you see something where they've they've fabricated things, extrapolated things, they've contradicted things that have been said, and and they they provided this completely different report. They might not have even bothered to see whoever was coming in, and when that level of corruption, I mean, I, I don't know what to call it. When you see that, you again, how how do you counter that? Yeah, uh, you're not allowed. I think you are you're allowed to request now, but you weren't allowed to record these medical medical i mean that's a bizarre thing to call them you weren't allowed to you know video or tape them so again you've just got a testimony of this person who's lied about you and and you've got no recall to say well, actually this is what i said this is what i represented there's no facts there going on and, and then that, that that document goes off and that's what the dss assess things assess people on right uh, and it's just unbelievable. And the energy to fight that is is something that someone with ME doesn't yeah. necessarily have. You just I mean, get it's, it's, down. It seems mm. very painful, like to me, to, that ME and, and conditions like that 
they already seem quite Kafkaesque from a bio- biological point of view. You wake mm. up one day and suddenly you can't do the things that you could mm. do before. Uh, and then you have to deal with a system that tells you you're lying around that. And yeah. then, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, and one of the other things we touched on when we were talking earlier on is that, you know, I was saying that I knew someone when I was a teenager who had mm. me, and you were saying that, uh, that people in their teenage often get kind of a really hard time getting a diagnosis uh, mm. and don't get believed and uh, that their parents get put under a lot of pressure to because you've got to get your child into school and mm. that's so so like strict a, uh, a way of thinking that mm. children must go to school just as it is adults must go to work right yes. uh, that once you once you have something that means you can't do that people don't believe you and you know parenting gets put under in mm. question there are very few people who have the power like the privilege I guess if yeah, they do yeah. get a condition like Emmy they will be able to just go right well I'm okay you know if, if you've got enough money mm. right if yes. you've got and, and and you know there's different levels of, of, of privilege you know obviously mm. you, you had a supportive family and all of those mm. things that you really yeah. need yeah. if you didn't have that when you mm. were taken with Emmy then then right I mean they, they, you know once you start thinking about what, what happens to people who don't have you mm. know the the uh the benefits of a relatively middle class setup, you know, it's yes. it's it's pretty mm. bleak. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, that was tough. yeah. And I mentioned that the um, uh, that there were stories. That hopefully, it happens less now. Um, but uh, of children getting ME and, and actually being taken away, taken into right. care because the the system is is doubting the parents' uh, uh, outlook and, and doubting the child's truth of their story, and, and so because they're not in school, they're taken away from the family. And then they've got ME, you know, that's, that's the only issue. I, I know these, there's some like sort of celebrated cases that will be, will be well known in the ME world, but unbelievable that something could go that far. Yeah. And you think, yeah, surely not, not in our society. How, we, how can we allow that sort of thing to go on? Uh, but again, the people are just so powerless and have no voice. Yeah, and people don't trust. Like, it's interesting. The, the, I guess the other, thing, the other thing that stands out from our unrecorded conversation <laughs> that, that that I guess I want to like mention again this time round is that you know you're one of your early doctors you were in a wheelchair told you you didn't need to be in that wheelchair in full view of the entire oh. rest of the kind of the patients in the waiting room and kind of humiliated you in that way yes um and that's a doctor doing that mm. you know and yeah she's a consultant you right. know that you book an appointment with being referred from a doctor and and again, it must have been ninety, I don't know, one or two. But uh, I would, I would hope things have changed. But it was quite astonishing that he would do that in front of a waiting room and do it, do it at all. Yeah. And, and clearly showed that he he didn't. That was after the consultation. He didn't believe clearly whatever he'd assessed me as and whatever I'd been saying. So yeah, you, that at that point you start to have a very different impression of uh, the medical profession or some elements that there's yeah. some some great stuff that you see in there but uh, you're aware that there's a huge variation and they're, they're, they're just people yeah. they're, they're not some uh, someone elevated to some status in a white coat that you might think you know, through your childhood when you encounter doctors um, that it's a very fallible human system in there as well yeah there, there were doctors that just weren't educated certainly with the condition I had or, um, or prepared to acknowledge it yeah um, and I, I actually remember, I don't know, I, I, I knew I was ill. I, I, I remember at that time I felt more concerned for um, 
other people that this consultant might see who went in to, with, with a similar set of symptoms who perhaps didn't have my, uh, I don't know, support or self-confidence to, to counter that who yeah. might start doubting themselves. Right, and that um, definitely happens. Or, or, or just get hugely depressed, you know. Right. I mean, where would you go with that? You know, you, you come for help and you're told that, that what you've got isn't real and yeah. you go away and sort yourself out. I mean, right. that's, that's terrible. Yeah. It is terrible. It's it's always hard to, to work out how to um, round up the these kind of conversations when it does get to a to a sort of like a, a, a sort of not negative point of view. But I mean, you know, not everything in the world is positive, and mm. it's important to look at these things. Yeah, it's just heavy, I suppose. <laughs> but the, you know, the, the the cliche of my show is I say, you know, uh, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, which it has been. But mm. at the same time, it's not it's not a pleasure to hear about the negative experiences that you've experienced with the me- medical profession. So it seems an inappropriate place to say. It's fine. No, it's a pleasure talking to you, Dave. But it's always. but it's certainly uh, the time to sort of ask the last question. Um, which is, do you have anything to plug? You've, you've listened to the show, so you'll have heard a few different ways people have taken this, so I can probably do away with my spiel about the different ways it can go. So, yeah, however you want to take that. Uh, if you've listened to the whole story, um, uh, uh, anyone uh, who encounters anyone with ME, they're probably uh, telling the truth, and uh, uh, and hopefully there's a bit more... Not that I've done this as some preaching thing, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's good to make people aware of of what is a large number of people out there who clearly don't have much of a voice and, and just to get some understanding from that. Yeah, I mean, you, and the, the 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 Spark London story that you told is the episode we've used of you, mm-hmm. so, um, and that's a shorter form than this one <laughs> yes. uh, and sort of gives the gives the story there, so people should check out that. I think it's called... Is it called? What's it called? I can't remember. It's I can't remember what the title it has. Me yeah. story. I think it's M E. Yeah. M E story. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I've got no. Um, you know, uh, I'm not representing anything apart from my own story. But uh, yeah, there's there's good uh, national organisations that provide a ton of information. If uh, if anyone out there um, knows someone with M E, and they're generally the first place to go to, and you'll get better information from there. So yeah, on the up note, you know, I, I got over it. So that's like, right. You did. <laughs> not that every story has to end uh, end happily necessarily. No. But, um, yeah, maybe there's there's some hope. And uh, I remember just briefly, if uh, uh, the uh, there was a talk at the Oxford Group going way back, maybe ninety three or something. I remember that there were. Not normally the, the the local groups will will you know focus on issues, bits of research and problems. And there was one particular evening when they had recovered ME sufferers, and there were four people who talked about how they got through it. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, "Oh God, you lucky bastards! You got through it. It's different for you, or something." And and but the stories were really. Um, full of that there was a hope even if you couldn't take what they'd done or anything from that and apply it there was just a story of someone who'd been just as ill sometimes more ill than I was who got through it and that in itself I think was encouraging at some weird deep level that that people who'd had it for a long time could still find their way through and you know I had over whatever it was 12 13 14 years of this and and came through and uh, that in itself shows 
it's possible. You know, bodies can wake up from this uh, from this syndrome and, um, and and get back to a better level of uh, of living. And and so some people can live, you know, happily and well. You know, it's not like saying everyone's got ME is, is miserable and it's all terrible. Um, but you know, they have their own way of, of of living, and that that is not what they want. But uh, you know, um, y- you want to get well. That's the bottom line. And uh, so, so yeah, maybe my story is similar to the ones I heard back then that uh, it can uh, just make real the idea that that people can come through even after a long period of it. Yeah, I mean that's so. It's always a good thing to to be aware of in the in your darkest places that that it is possible for things to get better. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's easy. People often say it will get better and that can become frustrating because it won't mm. always. Yeah. But at the same time, you should never forget it can. I guess mm. that's the thing, isn't it? That it can, things can mm. get better. Yes. And uh, I think it was interesting the, the first time round, well, the, the unrecorded conversation, I think you said that you had a kind of revelation mm. um, where you realised you were more well than ill. Mm. And before that, you'd been more ill than, than well. Yes. And, you know, that's an, an interesting moment to have had. Uh, and, yeah, I think it's very applicable to lots of other experiences. I, I think uh, people I know with mental health issues, for, for sure, mm. um, have had those kind of moments of, oh, I'm, I'm more sane than, than not sane. Uh, and... You know, those are those are those are experiences that we can all we can all possibly have. Mm. It's uh, that they're available to everybody. They're not guaranteed for anyone. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and the last thing that I ask my guests to do uh, is to say goodbye to the audience. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye. This has been Ian. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, everyone. This conversation was recorded around about a year ago, and since then. Ian has, in a similar way that happened to me in the past, gone from being someone who regularly tells true stories at Spark to being a member of the Spark London team. And he is a really excellent addition to a growing team of people who are trying to spread true storytelling and develop true storytelling. One of the developments that Ian has brought is he has made our franchise move out of London and have further reach in that he's helped to set up Spark Bristol, who you can find at www.sparkbristol.org.uk and Spark Preston, who you can find at www.sparkpreston.org.uk. You can find Spark London at www.sparklondon.com. We run open mics in London on the second Monday of every month at the Hackney Attic, and that's the one that I host. And on the third Monday of every month, which is upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton. And on the last Thursday of the month, we run Spark Encore, which is the new name we've given to Best of Spark. And this month's Spark Encore is a very, very special one because it's when we're going to be recording a BBC Radio 4 pilot for a show called BBC True Stories. So come along to the Exmouth Market Theatre on the 25th of June. Make sure you book your tickets in advance. Search BBC Radio 4 True Stories on Facebook and you'll find the event and that'll tell you all you need to know to come along. 
Not only that, but Ian is joining my stand-up tragedy team to go to Edinburgh this year. Stand-up tragedy will be happening at the Banshee Labyrinth as part of the free festival from the 8th till the 30th of August, 7.30 every day. Stand-up tragedy are doing that show and we're also producing two solo shows one of which is mine and showcasing some live recordings of getting better acquainted they'll be on tuesdays at the banshee labyrinth that's the only day that stand-up tragedy has off and in its place will be live recordings of this very podcast that you're listening to now my show is called what about the men mansplaining masculinity and that has an ian connection as well because ian amazingly when i was looking for someone to help me make a website to showcase that show and a survey of 1000 men that i conducted as research for that show i was looking for someone to help me make that website and ian very kindly offered me his services and made a really great website which you can find at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk so go over and have a look at that project that i'm doing i'm going to be previewing it on the 23rd of july at the dogstar in brixton and then it'll be at the edinburgh festival from the 8th to the 30th of august at 12.05 every day at the cabaret voltaire Follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at QBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook, subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.